Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, so today on The Less Stress Life, we have part two with Dr. David Hanscom. Last week, we were having a great time talking about um, anxiety and the paradigm shift around anxiety, which we're about to discuss. However, we didn't get into the family dynamics because a topic like this not only uh, affects kind of your own personal health, but maybe what's going on all around you or some of the things that we think about as stressors. So while Dr. David Hanscom spent most of his life as a successful orthopedic spine surgeon, he also spent a significant time of life working through the intricacies of anxiety and panic attacks in his own life. And after decades of trial and error, he determined much of what we identify with as anxiety can be addressed by reducing levels of stress hormones point blank. As a result, he helped many of his patients correct their own back pain by helping them correct their levels of stress and anxiety. And as this was the most rewarding work of his career, Dr. Hanscom retired to spread this message as a protocol called Direct Your Own Care. He's the author of Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, and the forthcoming book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And last week he mentioned, I'm going to write about the family dynamics too, because it really affects them, and that's what we're going to chat about today. Um, He'll explain the connection between anxiety and surges of body chemicals and tell us how you can train your body to control these surges even when the stress comes from your kids welcome back thank you very much i enjoyed the conversation last time and i'm looking forward to today okay so so um do we want to recap stress and anxiety responses first before we talk about how you know when you're talking about spine surgery suddenly we're talking about families maybe let's talk about the big picture first recapping stress and anxiety response and specific stress hormones and neurotransmitters like what happens when your body is under stress um, of all right well here's the way every living creature survives is they're processing sensory input with your cat or a dog or a lion or whatever you are you're processing the environment every second with sensory input from your eyes and ears, etc. And you're acting in a way to remain safe. It's how we survive. And humans have the same response where we're assessing the environment, we're looking for physical threats. The species of creatures who didn't pay attention to their environmental cues didn't survive. 
it really is survival of the most anxious, most alert that actually who we are by definition over millions of years of evolution. What happens is that this is not psychological. So you have, humans have a bit of a problem. We have consciousness, I call the curse of consciousness. So if you're faced with a physical threat, your body says danger, you take evasive action, danger resolved, and your stress chemicals go down. But what happens is stress chemicals increase your chances of survival because they increase your heart rate, they shut down the blood supply to your stomach so you're not wasting energy there, you're more alert, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens, it doubles your nerve conduction. So what happens, you're more apt to survive because your body's on high alert and ready to survive. When your body's full of, sensate, full of those stress chemicals, humans have a word for the sensation called anxiety. It's just a description of your levels of stress chemicals. When you're lying on the beach and relaxed, your body's full of serotonin and dopamine, the play chemicals, and you feel relaxed. But you wouldn't call relaxed a diagnosis, correct? No, not at all. And same thing, anxiety is not a diagnosis either. It's just a description of your body's chemical state. If there's one message I want to get out to the world is that that survival response called anxiety is simply understand simply a measurement of your stress chemicals. The unconscious brain processes 11 million bits of information a second. Do you know how much the rational brain processes? 40. Uh, much less, yeah. <laughs> right, so it's 40 versus millions. What happens is that you know, this massive survival response that every living creature has, we tend to identify our, our, with our anxiety because it feels unpleasant. Remember, the cessation generated by a threat is intended to be extremely unpleasant because it compels you to take action to survive. Humans have the problems that the conscious brain has thoughts. Thoughts have been, show, been shown to go to the same region of the brain. You have the same chemical result, but you can't escape your thoughts. That's a major problem because what happens, every human being is subjected to, to somewhat sustained levels of stress chemicals. And there's a study called the ACE study called Adverse Childhood Experiences that they've known for years in the in the adverse childhood experiences are, are is, there's eight of them. Huge research project, Kaiser study, 1996, 17,000 patients. So they simply took parental neglect, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, parent in jail, parent on drugs, et cetera, stuff like that, just to score. They found out if your ACE score was three or higher, you had a shorter lifespan, higher heart disease, anxiety, depression, suicide, obesity, all these things went up. So my question to you is, why? So you come from a chaotic childhood, you grew up, you've learned your lessons. Why would your lifespan be shorter because of an, of an unpleasant childhood? Well, don't you kind of um, present, like, don't you have these learned behaviors through your unconscious, right? Like what you experienced as a childhood manifests as an adult? Absolutely. That is the answer, by the way. Because what happens anytime you're anxious or frustrated, something in the present said danger. Well, you learn the danger from your past. If you scared my cat once, next time you're a guest in my house, my cat's not, not going to want to be around you, right? They remember. Humans have the same capacity. We, of course, a lot more sophisticated. But in an unpleasant childhood, things were dangerous. You had a right to be afraid because things were dangerous. You weren't safe. And so what happens is that more things in the present remind you of things from the past. Anytime you're anxious, your body's saying danger, your stress chemicals are up, 
But assessing anxieties who I am, just realize that's your survival mechanism that's much, much stronger than who you are. And what happens is that without the survival mechanism, you wouldn't survive. It's much stronger than your conscious brain. I ask my clients, say, look, visualize a thermometer on the opposite wall of the room. When you feel anxious, just visualize that thermometer going up. So I'm nervous. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm paranoid. I mean, there's different levels of anxiety, right? So what happens, the way you decrease anxiety, of course, you decrease your stress chemicals. But anytime you're anxious or frustrated, you've been triggered in the present by something in the past that seemed dangerous or was dangerous to you. That's how we survive. So we're always interpreting centuries, but so since humans can't escape through thought, every one of us is under a long-term chemical assault. Now, there's ways of solving that, and I'm not sure that's the topic we want to go through today because we think we talked about that last time. But anyway, the key issue as far as decreasing anxiety is simply decreasing stress chemicals. It is not a psychological issue. Okay, I have a few questions. Are you following, are you following, yep. follow, follow me so far? Yeah, I am. Do you want to just keep going? I was going to ask you if you had to psychoanalyze your own past to figure out what was causing those stressors for you. I mean, did you uncover that that was a piece or did you, I mean, do you acknowledge it and then move on? You have to, you have to be aware of it and move on because what happens is the more you analyze it, there's somewhat of a misnomer in psychology right now that the more you understand something, that somehow you're going to solve it. The problem is from a neuroplasticity standpoint is that the more you talk about it, you actually reinforce it. It's a huge problem. Mm. Okay. So we need to change it. Got it. Um, so awareness is great. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, you were talking about you have these these thoughts. So I was thinking I'm always jotting notes as people are talking. And I wrote, so you have to change your thoughts. But that I don't know if that really works. Like, can you just say you can change your thoughts because people that feel um, basically hobbled by this feel that their thoughts are out of their control? Not just that. If you're talking about changing your thoughts and that's in your conscious brain and your unconscious brain has a, a much bigger hold on you, does that even make right. sense? Right. So what happens, you can't control your thoughts, but you can separate from them. There's a very simple exercise I think we talked about last time called expressive writing. You simply write down your thoughts on a piece of paper and you tear them up. Now, you're tearing them up for two reasons. One of them is to just write with freedom. But the second reason, which is more important, is actually to not analyze them. <clears throat> they're not who you are. They're just thoughts. And so what happens, you're not going to get rid of these thoughts because there's trillions of thoughts, but you're simply separating from your thoughts. That Simple writing exercise has been documented in over a thousand research papers to be effective, different forms of it, of course. So that's the starting point. So the way you decrease your stress chemicals is directly with mindfulness, meditation, relaxation. But the other way is neuroplasticity, where you, instead of being stress automatic survival response, which are the stress chemicals, is stress a little bit of a space, then you make a choice of response. As you start methodically making the different choices, you're literally changing the structure of your brain. You're rewiring your brain. Mm -hmm. So it's called neuroplasticity. And positive thinking is somewhat of a disaster because you suppress your thoughts, but positive substitution is sort of a big deal. So it's awareness separation reprogramming. A more sophisticated way of awareness separation reprogramming is forgiveness, becoming aware that you're angry, become what it's doing, become aware of the chemical response, and forgiveness is a separation process. Then one of the reprogramming tools, which is the opposite of anger, is play. So when you're at play, full of oxytocin and dopamine, you feel great. Generally, 
the one essence of enjoying your life is your stress chemicals or not, or relaxation chemicals, but your sense of well-being is essentially dependent on your body's level of stress chemicals. It turns out that the mental pain is a much bigger problem than the physical pain because you can't escape it. But the mental pain gives you sustained levels of stress chemicals, which translates into physical symptoms. Mm. But jumping to the family, so anyway, as far as this part of it, to jump to the family issues, is that if you have a difficult past, you come from a chaotic childhood, you tend to actually become partnered with your darkest, deepest patterns because they're the most familiar. So these family patterns start playing out in your new family. And what we found out about three years ago in our pain project is we watched hundreds of patients get better through a self-directed process. We also became clear that the trigger, the family triggers are the biggest problem. And when I say triggered, somebody says something that just upsets you. Well, it turns out that you can say something to me that upsets me, but it wouldn't upset my wife because it means nothing to her. Mm, so when yeah. you say something that upsets me, it has nothing to do with you. There's something in my past to get reminded of your statement, tone of voice, whatever it was. So you triggered me. So when I say trigger, that means you're when anytime you're anxious or frustrated, you're triggered. So what happens, these family patterns play out in your new family with your partner or your spouse, but also you're programming your kids to have the same behaviors that you have. You can talk all you want. You can intellectualize, do this, this, and this. But what they're learning, and not intellectually, by the way, they're simply absorbing your reactions to the world. So if you're angry or frustrated, guess what? That's what they're going to learn. So this situation makes you angry and frustrated. When they're confronted with it, that's what they're going to learn to do, right? Right. Simply a programming issue. And all the, quote, didactic education isn't going to work at all because what you're doing you're telling them that this is dangerous, just by example. They have this massive survival response. So when you say, don't do this, this, and this, first of all, their abstract brain hasn't developed yet. But second of all, you're dealing with this massive survival response that they don't know what to do with. So we found out that the family triggers are the trump card. One of the most ironic, perverse parts of the human, human condition is that the deeper your relationships, the deeper the triggers, right? Sure, yep. We honestly never found one couple in our three years that we did this with my nurse and my team. Every couple is triggered. It's part of the human existence. So what blows relationships apart isn't lack of communication. It's not lack of common interest, common life together. It's a, it's a, it's a neurological trick. It has nothing to do with rationality because you're dealing with the unconscious reactions that are very, very powerful. We developed a set of rules around the family structure that made a huge difference. And I'll just review those very, very quickly, but this is not my book. My book's Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. The family stuff just emerged a couple of years ago. It's on the website. If you go to my website under stage one, which is backincontrol.com, right below the steps, it says, click this link to begin your healing journey with your family. And there's a whole bunch of website posts on this thing. But what we've learned essentially is that, first of all, everybody's triggered. You can do all the treatments in the world to decrease your pain, but if you're triggered, it goes out the window. So we ask families to start with four things. First of all, I say, look, I know you're in pain, but I want everybody in the household to be participating in the project. That means everybody reads the books that's old enough to comprehend the process, do the writing relaxation, do the tools outlined on the website, but to do it separately. In other words, if your spouse doesn't want to do it, it is what it is. You can't control each other to do this. But each person takes their own journey. Second of all, I said, look, I want you to put up a concrete wall. 
metaphorically between the two of you as far as your pain. So no talking about your pain, which means, by the way, no complaining. Remember, physical pain is one thing, mental pain is another, but they both go to the same part of the brain. So if you want to complain about your kids, you complain about your spouse, or complain about politics, whatever it is, no complaining. Mm-hmm. The second rule has like been very this. powerful. I like that rule. <laughs> yeah, just don't, no complaining. Which the corollary of that is also only listen. So one of the homework advice I give to my parents is to, when you go home for the next month, I don't want you to give one piece of advice. I want you to only listen. And their eyes open wide open. They go, what? And somehow as parents think we're supposed to give our kids advice, a role as parents in a family, by the way, there's a book out that I recommend to the world called Parent Effectiveness Training by Dr. Thomas Gordon. I read it when my son was two, and I certainly wasn't the perfect parent, so I don't, I don't want to sound preachy here. But my son will tell you, he's not 35, that he never was officially disciplined ever. But at the same time, we were a very strict parent. And somehow parents think, I'm the parent, this is the child, I need and I'm supposed to discipline this person. That's why not how you develop healthy relationships is that you're not disciplining your spouse, you're not disciplining your coworkers. Why would you discipline your child and what this book does, it takes you to a human-to-human existence and it just transforms my life. That book had, has had the most impact in my life as any one book ever. So I say, look, go home and just listen. And then really develop a true relationship with your kids instead of having the parent-child label on it. Just go human-to-human and truly play, truly have a good time, truly make your needs known, let them make their needs known, negotiate a way to live together. But it's really how to live, learning how to live together in harmony. Because if you're angry and frustrated, there's a process called mirror neurons that when you smile at a baby, the baby smiles back, correct? Mm-hmm. It's not because the baby's happy. It's just because you stimulated that part of the baby's brain. When they do research on football fans, they watch a football quarterback throw the football, the throwing center lights up in the fan's brain. Or when somebody laughs, other people laugh. Or somebody yawns, other people yawn. yawn. That's mirror neurons. So if you walk in the door after work, you've had a bad day, and you're upset, what do you think that does to your family? Especially if you're in pain. It's the opposite of smiling at a baby, that's for sure. Yep. yep. So what you've done, you actually stimulate that part of the brain, and then your kids sense that. And so look, one of the rules is that you're going to create a safe house that if you get, if you get triggered and need to argue or fight, take it outside. Don't create an absolute rule that simply arguing or fighting is going to take is going to go outside. Make these four walls your safe house, no matter what. That'll be fun. If, if my kids are going to argue and fight, I can send them outside. That's what you're telling yeah. me. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, you have a right to go home and it'd be a peace, right? Your kid. So if you get upset at one of your kids, the other kids have a right to. In other words, you get upset at one of your three kids. You have a right to enjoy, they have a right to enjoy their evening without it being disrupted with you arguing with one of your kids, right? One of the nurses I worked with um, back east um, had two teenagers, 16 and 17, and we started to argue, if I should just send them to the garage and just take it outside. And obviously the argument could cut way short. And it doesn't, everybody's going to get triggered. But what happens if you start really understanding the mirror neuron effect, it is powerful, but you're not doing it as a manipulative tool. If you're truly happy, truly happy to see your family, whatever, 
you start a ball rolling, that really works. If you're doing it for a manipulative tool, of course, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So this is actually learning to really enjoy your family, really understand and become aware when you're triggered. You're not going to get rid of the triggers. They're always going to be there. But I also have a little saying that I say to myself is no action in a reaction. So if I'm triggered or upset, I've learned to either leave the room or zip it or both. But when you're upset or angry, guess what? It's only destructive, right? Right. Anything you say when you're angry or upset is actually going to be only destructive, especially to your kids who are dependent on you. One of the so I'm just curious from your perspective how it lands on you when I say, look, no advice, no complaining, only listen. How does that feel? You know, it reminds me when people say things, it reminds me of something, right? And I think about my Mm -hmm. mom almost giving advice to nauseam, right? And how some of my family members still call for that advice all the time, but I will not be looking for that advice. Now, because I grew up with that, it might be natural for me to give that advice. I'm I'd have to think about it for a moment. You know, I think I do give it to my oldest child sometimes. And that's probably, and actually she is much more mature than I am. She is a better listener. (laughs) And so, and she's actually had that assignment. She's gone through some classes where um, she was doing some like childhood education things where her job was to only observe, right? And not do anything, Hmm. just observe. And I remember her Hmm. telling me about the project. It was just last year. And she said it was really enlightening and eye-opening. Again, more mature than I am. <laughs> and so it's actually kind of funny because uh, if I if I tell her this, she would say, "Oh, you're going to be you're going to learn a lot from that." And I mean, I could I could learn a lot from just observing her, right? I could. She is a great right. role model for me. Um, so that's what it makes me think of. It doesn't really create heat. I love tools that take me out of any anger, right? Because it's easy to feel triggered because I grew up with with some of that, right? I grew up. I actually watch other parents now. I had a I had a little bit of a, a shift of my own this summer where the kids were being so naughty on a trip. I said, well, we're not going to go to this museum anymore. We're going to go home. <laughs> and so I kind of implemented a, a different structure where basically, and I'll summarize it quickly. Basically, the big change was when we have an issue, we're just going to count it out and we're gonna have a quick timeout and then we're gonna let it go and just we're not gonna deal with it anymore. It's over. And that was a mm-hmm. that was that was the big key. It was letting go of something and not stewing on something. So in the same way you right. said, when you talk about something, you let it fester. And then it right. becomes like a longer it's hard to enjoy your family when you are and sometimes you just can't rationalize with little kids anyway. So the idea right. I'm just chuckling in my head about throwing them outside, you know, when it's snowing, but we have a great garage. And it's very fun. Right. If you go to the garage, there's no way you're not going to be having fun. Um, Right. There's lots of fun stuff. So anyway, my point is, is, um, that I, that the children used to, I used to say this caused a lot of stress for me, right? Like leaving the office, going home, walking into the environment was stressful because of like not listening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But once I decided to let go of stewing on something, right? Cause it was a tool I had, it mm-hmm. changed my levels of stress. Like it just like it went down completely. I didn't have, right. I didn't feel those, those feelings. So I love the idea of saying, well, we're just not going to fight. Like making an announcement guys, we're not going to fight anymore. <laughs> if you're going to fight, yeah. you have to go to the garage, which would be great. Cause that's still the old, you know, if they're going to, cause this is how kids, I don't know how many kids you have. Um, David, but I've got, you know, two. And when they're kind of close, every kid wants to poke at each other, right? You right. know, I, I have a lot of, I, I, I like everything you're saying. It all sounds really good. But I, through the week before we taught, you know, between our, our chats and I was thinking about family dynamics, I was thinking, well, what if this? Well, what if this? Well, what if this? But if you're just saying, well, no fighting, <laughs> yep. um, I guess it just, it ends a lot of the talking points. 
Right. But think about it carefully. I mean, when did you ever actually solve anything in a fight? Never. Yeah, right? never. Mm-mm. Never. So remember, okay, we're talking about go back to the anxiety issue. So again, just to your listeners, anxiety is just simply the state of your body's chemistry. The part that's really hit me just the last couple of days is that who we are as humans, as individuals, is actually the rational brain. And so you have this rational brain that's being crushed by the unconscious brain. That's why humans act in such a terrible way with behavioral patterns when they actually know better, because they're just being crushed by this overwhelming sense of anxiety. Once you can separate from it, then you can actually allow your rational brain and your individuality creativity to thrive in a level you can't imagine. But that's who you are. You're not your survival response. You are you, which is the rational brain. So if you take the energy with your rational brain to try to squish or deal with this unsurvival response, it's a, bit, it's a bad deal. Again, use the word elevated stress chemicals instead of the word anxiety. But remember, the antidote to anxiety is control. Something creates a threat. You control the situation or take evasive action. Once the situation is solved, then you actually go back to a normal state of chemical existence. But, but when you if? can't do I that, you if? can't do <laughs> so if you can't control the situation like chronic pain, for instance, or your thoughts, then your body kicks in more stress chemicals in an effort to regain control and you become angry. Angry is just a survival emotion. It's only about you. It is destructive. It is only destructive. I like it. The answer to the question. I think about people, you know, this is a lot, control is a huge word, isn't it? Right? So if you cannot control it, then you become angry and then it festers. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Well, again, anger does work. So if you're being physically threatened and you're trapped, you might secrete some more stress chemicals. An animal can't put a word on it, but you've watched a trapped animal and they're, they look angry, right? I mean, they're baring their teeth. Their hair is bristling. I mean, they're really, really aggressive. They're angry. Now, they, they don't have a word for it. Humans get angry, but again, our thoughts create the same chemical reaction. So it turns out, again, the mental pain is way bigger of a problem than the physical pain because, again, you have these sustained elevated levels of stress chemicals. People physically get sick. There's over 30 different physical symptoms that arise from being chronically stressed, including, by the way, autoimmune disorders. There's a major research paper out of Sweden on, on over 300,000 people in a registry showing a very, very direct link now between chronic stress and autoimmune disorders because it changes the histamine levels. Yeah, I've never talked to anyone with an autoimmune condition that didn't have a big underlying foundation of stress. So sorry to interrupt right. you. It co- changes histamine levels. I, tell us about that because people don't always know what that means even though they're familiar with it. So basically every day you have cancer cells in your body. They're foreign bodies. Your immune system picks them off just fine. You have bacteria that come into your bloodstream from your brushing your teeth, whatever. Again, your immune system treats them, just gets rid of them. And the reason why we stay alive is because of our immune system fighting off all these invaders. There's actually, I think there's more, there's, the number of bacteria in the gut is beyond, is trillions. I don't remember the exact number. But at the same time, you know, the bacteria, bacteria in your gut actually produce serotonin, the antidepressant. They also produce melatonin. Mm-hmm. So we developed this truce with the environment, including bacteria, infection, cancer cells, et cetera, that allows us to stay alive. It's all because of our immune system. And when people have cancer, they have chemotherapy. There's called a graft versus host reaction where the biggest people why people in cancer die under chemotherapy is their, their immune system fails and they die of infection, right? Mm-hmm. But so it's really critical to have an immune system. And then also my friends that have died of cancer were under horrible stresses the year before they got their cancers. 
Because again, you and I had you and I have cancer cells in blood today that got picked off by the immune system. So if you're full of stress chemicals, it compromises the histamines and, and it's just I'm being very simplistic here because I don't know it as well as I'd like to. But the bottom line is there's a whole field of neuroimmunophysiology mm. showing the effect of the environment on the immune system. And 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 again, these alterations in your autonomic nervous system in your body's chemistry has a tremendous effect on your ability to fight off infection and actually take care of yourself. I haven't heard anyone use the word neuroimmunophysiology in a while. Thank you for bringing that term back. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, in the dietary world, it's a big deal. I mean, you are what you eat. And so, again, the process of food flat out just cripple the inflammatory response. And I'm sorry, they cause inflammatory response, but they also compromise your immune system also, which, again, is a different bit of a problem. This is why food can affect someone's mood, which people yep. don't always believe, but it can. Right. Going back to the rules of the family, just to get very concrete about this, you know, please look at my website. I mean, it has been remarkable how powerful it's been to understand that the family is the trump card. They're the deepest triggers. They're the most powerful. It's also the most illogical because you love your kids. Why would you yell at them, right? Mm-hmm. You would do anything for your kids, but at the same time, you're being triggered. And again, these triggers mean this massive survival response compared to your rational brain. It's incredibly distressing how these people around you that you're close to, you love them, you're connected to them, but they end up triggering you because, again, you've programmed your own triggers, right? You've programmed your kids to behave in a way that you do, and you are triggered by the way your parents behave because it's just a generational programming problem. It is not psychological. So going back to the physical symptoms, people are saying, well, are you saying my autoimmune disorder is psychological? The answer is no. Your autoimmune disorder is because your body's chemistry is off and it stays off. That is not psychological. I was pondering this. Sorry for the pause there. I was thinking. I was thinking through. Uh, right? I was thinking through how I should ask the you about childhoods, maybe dis- more often. I don't know. Maybe I'll just refer him to this episode. Right. Okay. So, I'm sorry. Was the question again? Oh, it wasn't a question. I was pondering out loud. I always think I'm a learner, and so I like to take this information and take it back to practice. Right. I was thinking. I don't really ask people about their childhoods, but maybe I don't care about their childhood. Maybe I just want them to know that it can be this trigger in their condition. Right. So maybe I just refer them to this episode. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, what I I was actually in my chronic pain situation. I was um, extreme anxiety. I went from being a fearless surgeon to having anxiety in one day. It makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And I treat anxiety psychologically. I went through 13 years of psychotherapy. And I'm not against psychotherapy by any means. But the problem is I was in the paradigm that the more I understood my problem, somehow I was going to solve it. What I didn't realize I was actually re- reinforcing the responses. And the metaphor I like to use for you know, it's, it, instead of with neuroplasticity, it's awareness, separation, reprogramming. What I what I needed to do was become aware, then separate, and then just create a vision for my life. What I want my life to look like, and just execute. Mm-hmm. So, with your family, quit trying to fix your family's problems. Decide what you found, what you want your family to look like. How do you want to execute it? What things do you want to do that are fun? what hobbies you want to do, how you want to give back, how you want to structure your meetings, have a weekly family meeting, for instance, about how you want to run your family. It's like a business, right? But just be methodical and systematic about it. It's not a big belief system. It's not a huge philosophy. It's just the way the brain works. So again, with distressed relationships, both with partners but also with kids, is a neurological trick. It's just a trigger. 
And again, those triggers are powerful and they're extraordinarily disruptive. I was wondering, you went through these years of psychotherapy and then you kind of landed on, I mean, you didn't really land, but you pulled this together that basically anxiety is elevated stress hormones and you need to decrease it. But you just talked about how anger increases the same stress hormones and neurotransmitters that, you know, the stress does essentially, right? Because it's like, in theory, there's not a difference. So were well, you... Co- but, 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 but let me flip that statement for a second. Sure. So anger is a measure of higher stress chemicals. In other words, anger doesn't cause the stress chemicals. Anger is the stress chemicals. Mm, I like that. Yeah. So okay. I'm, I'm wondering how so, you came up, you know, how you came into this. Were you just like learning about stress chemicals and you realized, oh, these are all happening from these emotions. So therefore, if I turn these off, then all these emotions improve. I don't know. Yeah, I just, it just, I mean, it took me literally 15 years, I think, about this to actually come up with the sequence. And I've been, because I always thought that anxiety was a problem. So what I thought was anxiety was psychological. So to me, anxiety was one of those causes that created so much disruption in your body. What I didn't realize, anxiety was the result of the sensory input. Anxiety wasn't the sensory input. Thoughts are input. Again, you can't escape them. They create the same chemical reaction. Psychology comes into play because you can, that's what cognitive behavioral therapy does. It takes your disruptive thought patterns, allows you to see how flawed they are, then allows you to substitute, or another one called acceptance commitment therapy, allows you to have the thoughts and just to be with them. In other words, it, remember, stress isn't the problem, it's the reaction to it. It's mm-hmm. that chemical reaction that's the problem, right? Stress is stress. It's stressful being alive. What you're trying to work on is to decrease that chemical reaction to it. Because right. that chemical reaction that creates an uncomfortable feeling that you can't tolerate. So again, I was a master at suppressing anxiety. I went literally from being a fearless surgeon, honestly. I didn't, didn't even know what anxiety was, to panic attacks in one day. Once that happened, I couldn't stop it. Well, it makes sense if you look at, at being a surgeon as one of the ultimate suppressions of anxiety. And it worked. Until it didn't. And then when it didn't, it just exploded at a level I can't put it into words. Yeah. I have two big questions. Sure. Why? This one's really big. The other one's about kids. Um, because I'm sure like, I'm just trying to speak for the for the people in the room that might have these questions later. So if I mean, some people may not find this opinion, you know, these your your conclusions here are popular. I do. But for those, for those people who think, well, no, it's more to it than this. Why is anxiety so much more prevalent now than it seems like it used to be? Do you think it was always there and we just are more aware of it now and we're just giving it more discussion now? I'm just curious, you know, just big question, big life question out there. Yeah, no, no, it's definitely worse. I mean, the instance of chronic pain, which again, the mental pain is a bigger problem, creating physical senses, but the instance of chronic pain in adolescence has gone up over 800% in 10 years. I mean, the data is right there. It's not a subtle problem. Well, yeah. right. So I, I think right now it's a sensory overload. And so I think that one of the ways the brain develops is through play. And of course, we've gone from, you know, when I was a kid, I went to one of the top semi-pleasures in the world. I probably did four hours of homework a week. Now it's like three or four hours a day. So we're, we're knocking play out of people's systems. I think the lack of play is a major factor. Second of all, with play, there's a little book by Stuart Brown called Play. He goes in the, into the neuroscience of play. But play does during the day what dreaming does at night, what sleep does at night for you. Mm-hmm. And so it helps, it helps you body language, tone of voice, negotiating skills. I mean, the way you learn how to live life functionally is at play. When you're in front of a computer screen, it's two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. You can't learn how to interact with the people in front of a computer screen. 
So then I think the third thing, the computer screens are a massive problem. They're very addictive. We've seen all sorts of evidence now that texting is as, as addicting as drinking or drugs. I mean, it's just flat out addicting. And so, again, that's the whole thing about anxiety. So you have this elevated alertness, what's coming next. Uh, of course, the bullying factor is a massively huge problem, which I could talk about for a long time. But we're being sensory overloaded. We're also being, get, what's odd is that we have more opportunity now than we've ever had in our lifetimes. But our expectations are so much higher. So these unmeetable expectations are a problem. I also think from a parenting standpoint, it took me a long time to figure this out, but I did, that you have to really allow your kids to fail and to own their failures because they can't really own their successes unless they own their failures. And you just have to teach kids how to fail. It's like, do you snow ski at all by chance? Do I do what? Snow ski, do you ski? Oh, yeah, we do quite a bit. Yeah, so the number one thing you have to do with skiing is learn how to stop. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to control your speed. Mm-hmm. And with kids, you have to learn how to deal with adversity. You just have to learn how to fail. And by being a helicopter parent and trying to overprotect them and give them the best they could be and whatever it is, they don't own it anymore. And so, again, I think that's a major problem. But, again, the key issue here is that all kids are anxious. Mm-hmm. And by we're not teaching these skills. We're actually, in fact, none of us really being taught these skills at an early age. I just started a nonprofit years ago trying to put these things right into the classroom starting right there in first grade. But I still encourage the audience to start this simple exercise called expressive writing. Have your kids do it. And I've had a friend of mine had a first grade teacher who started doing it for the year. And their parents would come ask her and go, what's going on? My kid's behavior is calmed down. But again, there's over a thousand research papers that document that it somehow breaks up these spinning circuits in your brain and disrupts the patterns. It's not psychological. It's just a separation process from your thoughts. Mm. But go to my website again. On stage one, there's five steps. You have to look a little bit to find the family link. But there's a whole bunch of concepts and resources around the family. And what I was trying to say before I interrupted myself is that the family is the most powerful tool keeping people in pain. But conversely, it's been unbelievable how powerful it is about pulling people out of pain. It's been unbelievable. Yeah, it's been fantastic. That's a big point right there, right? Like people see it as the source, but it's also the exit as well. It depends on how you you plan it. You know, this would be the most perfect ending, but I just have to ask another question. Sure. Um, The question is, Dr. Hanscom, did your kids have to clean their room and did they listen really well? I know. I'm asking. I'm asking a little technical question, and you've given us this beautiful stand back. So I hope I made someone laugh right there. But uh, let's talk. About, let me just ask you about some everyday mechanics. Uh, you know, do you just let it go? Like, because if you don't want to have conflict, but you want something to be done, do you just treat it like a business? Right? Do you just take it to the family meeting? Like, well, didn't get this. Didn't get this job done in the business, so you know it doesn't equate to allowance. Or, or what do you think there? Well, again, it's not about permissive parenting at all. Again, I still really encourage the audience to look at this book called Parent Effectiveness Training by Dr. Thomas Gordon. It was written in the 70s. But it just completely changes the relationship between you and your child. So, again, it goes human to human. And what's going on is that you just simply negotiate. So the answer was I didn't have problems with that. And if you came in after curfew, so they always knew what the consequences were ahead of time. It wasn't even a punishment thing. Okay, you didn't show up till 1 o'clock in the morning. You're supposed to be home at 11. Guess what? You're just not going to go out tomorrow night. So it wasn't even an argument. It just happened. So it's, it's not about giving people permission to do what they want to do. And so 
I won't go into too personal detail here, but <laughs> what I would do, I'd, I would create expectations that we need to do this, this, and this done. And, and what parents forget, again, if they're not being triggered by their parents, in other words, if you're anxious or angry, guess what? Your kids can be anxious and angry. Mm-hmm. You get into this reactive mode, you actually can't solve the problem. So the problem isn't whether they're cleaning their room or not. It's the interaction that starts beforehand. So if you're coming out of an authoritarian, I mean, none of us like to be told what to do, right? right. Yeah. You don't, if I told you, okay, so your kids don't either. Yeah, I hate it. <laughs> I know. Right. So, so that's so telling your kid to clean the room, it puts you in a, an authoritative parent-kid relationship. The PET philosophy completely levels the playing field, and it just all these issues become non-issues. I can't. I just it's been really transformative for me. I mean, it's the number one book that changed my life was that book. I read it. I've read it at least twenty times. If things got, started going sideways in my family, I actually just picked the book up again. And then he's a child psychiatrist. It, it is it's one of those books that's so brilliant that I couldn't believe I had to read the read this book to figure out what he was saying. He was so clear. Mm-hmm. You were say, probably get, you were saying something probably, there. You said about if you're reacting. I, I was writing it down, then I missed it. You basically were saying you're go, you're spinning in circles. You know, if, if yeah, uh, you get this cosmic, you get this universal ping pong game going that you can't stop. So so going back to the more practical parts of it. So let's say you're having a bad day at work, or you've you've talked to a claims examiner who's pissed you off. Don't walk in the door of your house. Just don't come in the house. Don't do it. Because why? If you're in a bad mood, why are you going to bring it home? Why are you going to bring that cloud of negative energy into the room? Yeah. Go to the garage. Go to the garage. You know, just take a walk, drive around, whatever you need to do to not come home. And see, the thing is, people say, well, I come home 19 out of 20 times and I'm fine. But you probably know that intermittent reinforcement is a much bigger issue than consistent reinforcement. In other words, the reason why fishing is so addicting because it's intermittent. We don't know when that fish is going to hit. We're not going fishing at a trout farm. We're actually going fishing in the wild. So if we wanted to catch a fish every time, we just go to the trout farm, right? Mm-hmm. So it's that intermittent reinforcement is that, okay, 19 out of 20 times, mom or dad is happy, happy to see you. And that one out of 20 times, they're in a bad mood and just snap at you, really not your fault. You don't know who's going to walk through the door. You just got to make it absolute that you just don't walk through that door if you're in a bad mood. Just don't do it. Yeah. You, you can't even mask it. I mean, you, you and I both know that if you're in a bad mood, you can try to act happy, but you're not. And, of course, a lot of us are in a bad mood. We do use our families as the targets. Who is the least logical group to be your target because you have to live with them and you care for them? Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Because we're triggered, and again, it just overwhelms our rational brain. Find your. I think the end point there is if you are feeling elevated stress chemicals and you cannot control them and you become angry, find the thing that undoes that thing. Find your happy tool or whatever, whether it's the walk, whether it's you know whatever it is, right? So you can not come in the house as right. that angry person. So you can come in the house yep. as that happy person. And if you're happy, the world is good. Well, also remember, you, you don't want to suppress the anger. In other words, you don't want to suppress anxiety. You don't want to suppress the anger because you'll get sick. So I'm not asking you to be happy all the time. Nobody asks you to be happy when things are bad. But you have to are just becoming aware of the influence of your anger on the people around you. The other thing that happens with people in this modern day and age, we're overwhelmed with everything we need to do. So think about how often do we actually come home and are excited to see our kids. What can we do together? Let's take a walk. Let's grab – let's go bird watch or something together. We tend to come home and just go through the routine or just get through the evening, do the homework and go into bed. That's not actually, it's just, it's not life. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it is life, but it's not life. It's not the life that you really want. Right. So again, when we're crushed by all these reactive patterns, we actually lose our creativity. Right. And what you want to do is come home, and that's where the family meetings come into place. Again, these are all suggestions on the website. But there's lots of things you can do. What you can't do with anger is that you can't talk it out. That's one thing that you can't do, right? Yeah, right. So. And the other thing about this is I can hear, you know, as I'm saying, well, what if this, what if this, what if this? If you're reacting, you're losing the creativity. I like that. I like that concept there because it would be easy for someone to say, Dr. David, I don't have time to go bird watching because I have to go home and cook and clean and blah, blah, blah. Well, that is a choice we can like, if we don't really like doing that, how do we work our way out of that? That's where you can stand back and say, how do I create something that works better, right? I think there's always room to improve and create. You create the environment that you're standing in. And once you realize that, you know, it, it allows you to, you know, point point the cause inward right like i can right. i can it gives you ultimate control well take the word reactive mm-hmm. you have to admit when you're reactive why you just it's not a great place to be right mm-hmm. take the letter c and put it at the beginning of the word what do you get creative creative right so if you can see first i was create the bit of a space remember with neuroplasticity is awareness separation reprogramming so if you just take that deep breath, okay, my behavior is creating this effect on my family. I don't want to do that. So if you can see first, you, then you can be creative. If you're reacting, of course, creativity just disappears. Yeah, I like it. It's a cool tool. Cool tool. See first, and then you won't have to be reactive. You can be yep. creative. Cool. Right. Great. Well, I really enjoyed that. That was a fun, different concept. It's just, just it was just a good thing. This affects everyone. (laughs) So this is one of those great episodes that you should share with your family, share with your loved one, share with your mother-in-law, and then go over to the website and talk into the speak pipe. You can click on that or you can send us an email, hello at less stress life, and let us know how you like this episode. Leave a review below and we can't wait to come back and talk to you again next week. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock.